progressed, it became it became increasingly obvious that this is that this is one of the greatest problems I think facing our country. Um, you know, essentially, the the Christian left is really a growing constituency of of you know um, people who use the term Christian who have been influenced by Marxist thought, progressive ideology, uh, liberal theology. And, you know, in years past, this was mostly, uh, they were mostly found in academic circles. You know, it was, it was really, uh, um, you know, isolated within the university. What we're seeing now is that now the, the, the Christian left has invaded not only the pulpits, but we're also seeing more and more lay people being influenced by this. And not everybody who is a Christian leftist necessarily votes left. We have some people that still vote right who have been, their theology has been influenced by leftist ideas, but it's only a matter of time until their vote eventually shifts over to the left. So this isn't a problem that's only on the left. It's affecting Christians really across the spectrum because many uh, come into this theology unknowing. They just trust the guy who's saying this at the pulpit and not realizing that what they're getting has, has more in common with Marx than it does with Jesus oftentimes. You know, I think that it, it certainly really started as a major issue with, with various Protestant denominations, maybe in the mid-century with the National Council of Churches and the Federal Council of Churches, which was identified by testimony as a communist front. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's also made headway in the Catholic Church, which was less so because of its international hierarchy. But yet with this new pope and I think several other factors, yeah. we now have that kind of inroad as well. And, you know, it, it also goes back to Julian Huxley, who was the founder of UNESCO in 1947, brother of Aldous Huxley. He uh, is the uh, creator of the, uh, the evolutionary synthesis. And also the idea that all religions in the world would become synthesized into an a form of what he called evolutionary humanism. And yet he would leave in place all of the infrastructure, you know, the, the stained glass, the incense, yeah. the worship, the, the ceremony, the ritual. But yet they would change the meaning of the theology by changing the meaning of words within the faith so that... Uh, you know, as you say, like the Holy Spirit would be replaced by social justice. Yeah. And this sort of thing. So talk a little bit about that. So a couple of things. I mean, in the book, I actually trace this back. I mean, at least in more in, in more uh, recent centuries to uh, the 1700s, there was uh, there was a man in France uh, who was really sort of a, a French socialite uh, named Henry D. St. Simon, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, is the father of what we would, you know, call today Christian socialism. And, you know, I mean, his his ideas and his writings really had virtually nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, it was it was uh, um, sort of uh, Marxism before its time in many ways. And, and later, you know, at least, uh, you know, some would say influenced Marx's uh, thinking on this. Um, but but Henry D. St. Simon, you know, he didn't get a lot of momentum during his lifetime. But after his death, others started picking up his teachings. Uh, and, and this really started, you know, kind of creating this momentum. You know, of course, you have people like Hegel, people like Darwin, you know, that, that this progressive ideology that began, you know, shaping things. But if we go back even further, you know, we could make an argument that, um, you know, and, and this kind of leads into this universalism topic that you're, that you're addressing. Uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is it, uh, you know, we could look at the Tower of Babel as, as really a first socialist construct. You know, and that was set up, you know, what we know from a biblical standpoint, as well as some of the archaeological evidence we have as well, and, and you know, extra biblical texts, is that, you know, the Tower of Babel was likely set up as a defense against this God who flooded the world 
And, you know, to make sure that if he ever did it again, they would be ready. And, you know, um, uh, you know, and people like Nimrod that we see in scripture and others that are that are mentioned, it was really for socialist uh, uh, society, you know, and that that didn't work very well. The language was split. Obviously, this this was divided. But I think what we've been seeing, you know, metaphorically is sort of this desire to return to this uniform, universalist, unitarian idea of faith. Uh, and we basically have, the left is essentially constructing a new progressive neo tower of Babel, um, where all religions, you know, are identical and all roads lead to this idea of God. And, you know, really, I, I mentioned this, the left talks a lot about the separation of church and state. In actuality, you know, they don't really want the separation of church and state. They want a church that is subservient to the state. And that's one of the major premises of this book. And I think there are major efforts being made right now to ensure that the church, if it, if it will not get in line with the left's agenda, is, will be silenced um, you know, at, at any point that it disagrees with what it is that the state is doing. No, great, great analysis. I mean, I would even take it a step further and they want to, the state itself to become the church. Yes. They worship yes. the state. I mean, these are, you know, this is one of the things you mentioned, Hegel. He introduced the idea of the state as having an organic life. Yep. And um, an idea that was furthered by Oswald Spangler, who literally talked about the state as having a birth, a growth, a period of flourishing, and then a decline and a death. And that, uh, you know, they worship state power as the redemptive force on earth, the one that can transform human nature, make us all different, that all rights come from the state, not from a divine exactly. creator who, exactly. can, who cannot be manipulated. I also think of uh, Whitaker Chambers, the author of Witness, who was a communist in the 1930s, who became Christian, and who, would, who then exposed communism. And in his great book, he talks in the first chapter about the communism as being the world's second oldest religion, and mm -hmm. that it basically happened in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell for the you know, the, the song of the, of the serpent who represents Satan and was told you can be like God by partaking of the forbidden fruit. You can know everything. You can know good and evil. And in other words, you can overthrow God, which is what Nimrod was trying to do also yeah, in the garden, exactly. in uh, Tower of Babel. He literally was going up there to take God and put him in handcuffs and bring him down to a prison. And, you know, that is the communist idea that man it's, you know, Chambers talks about the, we have to ask the question, man or God? You know, we believe in God. The communists believe in man as the, as the controller of all things, of all realities. You know, and then therefore they appoint themselves as this sort of, you know, progressive, quote, enlightened group, this clique. Yeah. Who are then going to feel perfectly right about telling the rest of us how to live, what to do. So what if they need an occasional Holocaust? You know, it doesn't matter. It's all to cleanse man and move us forward in their very undefined and unnatural idea of some kind of an earthly utopia. This idea of utopia, I think, is, is exactly right. I mean, we, you know, I think to, to some degree, we can trace those, those thoughts kind of back to the garden, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, we see, we see Adam is kind of the first one to embrace leftist theology. You know, the moment God tries to, you know, get some sort of personal responsibility, you know, from him, he goes, it was the serpent. It was that woman that you gave me. You know, he's, he's willing to blame everybody else. And within, within, you know, the Christian left, there is no concept of original sin that has been discarded. Um, the Christian left, in fact, cannot 
uh, embrace the doctrine of original sin because it gets in the way of universalism. It gets in the way of their doctrine that there is no hell. Uh, it stands in opposition to a lot of the, the tenets of Christian leftism. And, and I think that this, this uh, you know, when you look at, you know, communism um, and, you know, not everybody who is a Christian leftist has necessarily embraced communism, at least knowingly, but there's these, this sort of undercurrent that, that binds that together. We see this obviously in liberation theology and, in, in you know, certain uh, uh, divisions of the Catholic church. Um, but, you know, the, the left has a desire to create on earth a utopia where man is God. That's exactly right. And uh, the reality, you know, I just finished reading Augustine's City of God, which is, in my opinion, one of the greatest literary works and, you know, that, that, you know, outside of scripture that we could ever have. And, you know, he's essentially highlighting this, that we have the city of man and we have the city of God. Uh, both progressive um, uh, theology and Christianity, historic Christianity, are on a journey. Uh, historic Christianity is obviously, is, it's, it's progressing towards a destination, and that destination is Christ, to be conformed into his image. Uh, progressive ideology or progressive Christianity, uh, it is also on a journey, but it is progressing for the sake of progress. There is no destination in mind. And so for each iteration that it goes through, it's just kind of, it realizes that the road just keeps going and there's, there's, no, there's no pit stop. There's no uh, place where we say we've made it. You know, within Christianity, there will come a day where, you know, God reunites, you know, with his people and, and we have this, this wedding feast of the lamb and, and, you know, we're all united together for eternity in this, in this uh, in perfect bliss in, within the Christian left. This is the utopia. This is what we're trying to build. And this is why topics such as, you know, some of the, the green issues are so important to them and, and, and social justice issues are so important. And it's not that those things don't matter to the Christian, you know, or the historic Christian. We should actually care about those things as much as anybody, if not more so. But we recognize that we are living for a city that endures. And so the majority of our efforts are spent on trying to win people to take them with us rather than just to try to, you know, create a, uh, um, a world that does not uh, endure. And, and that is, it can't exist. It's impossible for a man to create 100% a utopia because it runs against human nature. I mean, as, yep. as Genesis says, we're created in the image. And it yes. says both men and women, too, I may add. Yeah. We are created in the image of God. We're not God, and we can't know all things. Um, and I think that uh, Christianity, while I'm not Christian myself, I think that the one of the basic messages there is that it takes it a step further in that the individual has a personal relationship with God through Jesus as the intercessor. Yes. And that it's not something that's run by the state. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Christianity spread through the Roman Empire because it resonated with people. It was like, it was peaceful. It was, you know, actually more women than men, I think, were the early Christian promoters. Yeah, and that's it, true. That's absolutely true. Yeah, and eventually it, it, it became... You know, it, it transferred the power from the state to the person under God, as expressed, by the way, in our Declaration of Independence. We derive our rights from the creator, not from the state. And then one day, the emperor of, of Rome, Constantine, after persecuting Christians for all those, all those generations, woke up and realized that the entire empire had become Christian. And so he tossed in the towel and he said, OK. And thus you had this progressive I moment. Yeah. Charles, I think we're seeing that same thing today. And I actually talk about Constantine and kind of that shift in the in the book. And, you know, when you um, 
in, in years past, let's even talk maybe just a decade or two, it almost seemed as if the left was comfortable being the godless party. You know, Hollywood would always depict Christians, you know, as sort of the butt of the joke or the, 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 the dopey character, uh, you know, that kind of stumbled his way through life, didn't really have a whole lot to offer or the judgmental sort of figure, uh, the prude. And, and I think what they found is that, you know, that wasn't winning anybody over. And in, in actuality, I think people were recognizing, you know, some of the persecution, I'll, I'll use that word lightly, because obviously we have brothers that are going through, brothers and sisters that are going through tremendous persecution and, and you know, communist nations and Islamic, radical Islamic nations around the world. Um, but, you know, as far as American persecution, we were seeing some of that. And I think it was winning people over for the cross. Um, at some point, I think the left realized that, you know, the church cannot be defeated from the outside. And we might even go broader. Judeo-Christian values cannot be defeated from the outside. They had to really create what I call this Trojan horse, this theological Trojan horse that they inserted themselves into the church and began to kind of take over pulpits, winning over one denomination at a time, you know, starting with Unitarian groups and maybe moving to more liturgical groups like, you know, certain uh, divisions of the Episcopal Church or Catholic Church. And as they started kind of taking over some of these pulpits, um, the, the voice got louder and louder. And I think, you know, it's at the point now where the average Christian has a hard time, even some pastors, discerning what really is biblical Christianity and what is sort of this neo-Christianity that's being offered by the left. And, you know, uh, we have statements like, you know, AOC kind of mimicking uh, a Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, statement of Jesus was the, the first great, you know, uh, um, socialist, you know, and, and right. these ideas. That's what right. Castro said about Jesus. When the Pope visited, he goes, Jesus was a communist, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, in, in other words, what they're doing is they're boring from within, to use the old yes. saying back in the 1920s, they're infiltrating, they're subverting from within. They get in there, they get the, you know, the nose under the tent, and then they gradually work their way up, bring in their friends and colleagues and people who think like them, and gradually weed out the opposition over time, you know, through attrition or worse, you know, through scandal. absolutely. And and this is how they've taken over many of our cultural institutions in this country and in this world, like and academia, I, for example. And I but, think, but, yeah, it's shocking that it's it's also because you'd think that the church, as an institution of faith, would be the last bastion for conventional standards of morality and rightness and and of knowing these truths that we're talking about. And look, I, I don't want to just be chicken little in this saying that the sky is falling, you know, in every church. There are some great churches that are still out there. There's great yeah. denominations that are out there. Uh, there's, you know, and you could find within about every denomination, great churches that are, that, that exist. Um, but I think that we have to become more diligent in terms of studying scripture. I think we have to become more diligent in really dividing fact from fiction, from ensuring that, you know, our, our pulpits aren't invaded by, you know, politics. And certainly, you know, I have criticisms of the right as well. This isn't, this isn't just something that only exists on the left. I think the right, some of the response that, that ha it has made towards some of these things are, have contributed to, to more fallout and contributed to more problems. And as they get more desperate to find a voice, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, uh, issues arise there, but, but by and large, you know, uh, although maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you could still find a pro-life Democrat senator or congressperson. That's hard to find today. And, you know, people well, they've are all really- bummed out. I remember yes. when, I, when I was a radio host years ago at a Christian station in Boston, um, former Vatican ambassador, Ray Flynn used to come on after me and he, 
he told me that in many ways I was more Catholic than a lot of the Catholics involved. <laughs> <laughs> but he also told me that he was drummed out of the Democratic Party because he was pro-life. Drummed out, told me. With, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, a purge. And, and, even, and it's even easier now with, with Twitter and with, you know, kind of some of the leftist social media platforms. And look, I'm on social media. You can find me there. I've not, you know, completely vacated my post, but, you know, there's obvious, um, there's obvious bias. You know, we have court cases existing that are, that are demonstrating that and showing that. Um, and, and really the left has kind of built this sort of, again, it's kind of this tower of Babel where if you don't speak our language, then you're tossed out of the city. And, and so, um, you know, you have to, you have to talk about things, you know, right. You have to deal with, you know, diversity and, and racism and inclusion and all of these different things. You have to say it exactly the way that we want you to, because if you talk about personal responsibility, if you talk about, you know, if you talk about sin, if you talk about Judeo-Christian values, that doesn't have a place in the kingdom the left is building. And so you either have to become deconverted to their faith or you have to become ostracized. And that's, that's really the only two options they're going to give us. And that's, of course, the big weapon. I mean, if, when you control the high ground of communication and culture, you can remove people through yes. uh, shunning them and ostracizing and all the censoring and all the rest. And uh, one of the most troubling elements that they oppose, because it stands in the way of their vision of this new order of the universe with everyone is de facto equal and we all become a gigantic ant colony. Yes. It is this idea that there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is objective moral standards that can be applied. They want to portray that as somehow being mean and not nice to people. <laughs> right. You know, it's not, I mean, look, it's not a matter necessarily of public policy, but one can simply note what is right and wrong without necessarily imposing that on someone else. We all have our foibles, you know, we're all sinners in a way, but, you know, you still have to identify right and wrong, good and evil, in order for society to maintain an equilibrium and a cohesion and, and a sense of order, ultimately. You know, I think the left has really struggled to understand love. I have a chapter on on the, uh, basically, the, the misunderstanding of the love of the left. And, you know, what we see is that to the left, love means agreeing with me and, and that that is the only way to really show full acceptance of and, and dignity towards me as a person. You know, within, within Christianity, I, again, I don't even want to make this a right issue because I don't believe that Judeo-Christian values have to, they, they, don't, they didn't originate within the constructs of our left-right binary politics that we have here in America. They exist outside of that. And, and I think that truth exists outside of that. Um, you know, we can talk about policies left and right, but truth is something different. And so, you know, within Christianity, within Judeo-Christian values, it is essentially, you know, that, that there, is, there is right, there is wrong. I can love you and accept you and hold you with a, a, in a sense of, you know, dignity and, and value as a person without agreeing with every concept that you have. And you can have certain claims that you make that, are, that I believe are inherently false. I can still respect you, but I don't have to agree with you. Now I don't have, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a prude. I, I, I'm not a, coming across this as, as you know, some sort of very narrow-minded type of, of approach. I think that you know, when we see you know scripture, that there is a, there is a broad thing called orthodoxy, and that we can kind of live in this world of orthodoxy. The problem, though, is when you disconnect yourself. And my premise here, when you disconnect yourself from scripture, when you begin to kind of start changing the, the nature of what is true. 
you know, first of all, you have no longer any sort of, uh, uh, you know, any any moral structure that you create is just arbitrary at that point. It's not based upon any standard. It's just based upon your feelings, you know, whatever's in vogue at the moment. And I think it really begins to, you know, do what we've seen. It The left is kind of just drifting in this, these divergent backwaters of, of liberal theology and, you know, with no place to go and they have no idea where they're going to end up. And what's what's viewed as acceptable today will probably be prudish 10 years from now as culture goes further and further, you know, progressing into, you know, more and more uh, libertinism, et cetera. Well, it's all relative. And, you know, you, you talk about redefining the meaning of words. I mean, they define the concept of, redefine the concept of love, which does not mean, yeah. it's not some kind of a teenage crush kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's actually like, in, in the real sense, it means you can hate someone and love them in terms of respecting their rights. Yes. Same thing with the idea of tolerance. Tolerance doesn't mean you agree with someone. In fact, you can completely disagree. It simply recognizes the fact that in order for you to be a sovereign citizen under God, the other person has a right to be also a sovereign citizen under God, as long as they don't interrupt your sovereignty and you don't interrupt theirs. That's, I think, more the, the concept of tolerance. You can totally disagree. But they redefine that to say, oh, you have to completely embrace and agree with them in order to have tolerance. So, you know, that's this is such an interesting subject, the redefinition of words by the left. Social justice, of course, is a real big one and it's very nebulous. What does yeah. it mean? I mean, you know, you ask me what, what is social justice? To me, social justice is the death penalty for murderers. That's justice. Yeah. Right? But they would not, that's not how they mean it. They mean, you know, more socialism or what. So, you know, when we hear these words, we have to ask, you know, ask ourselves, what does this mean to me? And what are they really saying when they use it? You know, I, I think that's a great point and certainly one that, uh, you know, is, is that, that as Christians, we have to become uh, well-versed in. You know, I, I think that this idea of social justice um, to the left, it is very nebulous and it, it really is based upon, you know, just affirming the agendas that they have. Uh, you know, if you, um, you know, assisting a um, conservative minority family to the left is not any sort of social justice. You know, that's that's, uh, you know, those those people don't count. You know, it's it only counts when it kind of fits their definition. Um, there was a gal. Uh, there's a gal, Christina Forrester, who she's a founder and director of um, Christian Democrats of America. And she, you know, she self-identifies as a gay Christian, uh, would see herself. Obviously, she's the head of the, the Democrat Christian Democrats of America. Uh, you know, very left leaning. And she had this quote, and she says, the best way to tell if you're dealing with a person or a church um, that is calling good what is evil, she says, the Pharisee will point out your sin and condemn you, and Christ will point out your value and love you. Okay, and she she uses this to describe what happened in John chapter four with the woman at the at the well, sort of what, you know, they would kind of project as this act of social justice that Jesus is sort of ministering to this this forgotten woman, you know, at the well. Now, the problem with her premise is we see Jesus actually do the exact opposite of what she's saying. Jesus spoke to that woman while I would say completely in love. He spoke some very hard truth to her. Mm -hmm. he, he called her out and identified the fact that she had had, you know, multiple husbands throughout her life and that the woman she was living with now was not her husband. He was addressing all sorts of situations in her life. And she, so much so that she actually ran back to the village and said, come meet the man who told me everything about myself. Okay. And so Jesus did not, 
he did not shy away from speaking truth. There are some, I think sometimes the most just thing that you can do to somebody is say, you know what? Hey, you need to get a job and I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to help you. I'll help you go so far, but you have to show up to work. You have to do these sorts of things. You have to take responsibility for your life. The left has no desire to, to bring any sort of personal responsibility or to preach any sort of message of personal responsibility, because ultimately that message would be self-condemning for them because they're not willing to take responsibility for their own actions. And we saw that, you know, again, I, and, you know, just for the record, I'm, I, I spoke out right away about the, the, the Capitol insurrection and, and, you know, everything we saw there, horrific act for this country, total embarrassment for our nation. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, this, this, um, you know, but the, the, the court case, this impeachment case that we just saw, uh, you know, it's interesting because the, you know, when you run the tape and you see some of the things that the left has said, you know, those things don't want to get mentioned, you know, to, to chase people down in the streets, to push back on them, to punch them in the face, you know, to do all these sorts of things. There is only personal responsibility for those they disagree with, but not for themselves. Well, it's all very situational as opposed to fundamental. Yes. You know, like a, 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 a believing Christian would believe fundamentally that these things are, are wrong or right for that matter. Whereas for the left, it's all depends on which, you know, their whole premise is based upon advancing power. They yes. don't quite know what they're going to do with the power. I don't think they even know consciously. They just know that they have to forge forward to create power for themselves in order to change the world in their image. And that in order to do that, they have to destroy, not oppose, but destroy any, anyone that comes along and opposes their idea of, quote, progress, which is another word they've hijacked. Progress for them. Progress for me means knowing God. Yes. Progress for me means creating a better world by knowing the, the law of God and, mm -hmm. and, and how that functions. For them, progress is, is collectivism, creating the world ant colony. So, yeah. you know, it's like, it's, again, you have to get into these definitions. And, and even natural law is sort of a lost topic. I mean, if, even if we set aside kind of religious notions for a second, we just talked about this thing, you know, which philosophers throughout the ages would call natural law. And, and that there is a sort, sort of universal understanding that theft is wrong, that murder is wrong, that, you know, I mean, it's really all obviously, you know, as, as, as people with Judeo-Christian values, we know where this comes from, but, you know, there has been a, a uniform acceptance of, of natural law, but progressive societies in, in the, in the way that the left uses the definition, they have no use for that because it, it ultimately condemns their behavior. It condemns fraud, it condemns theft, it, it condemns taking advantage of, uh, of, you know, um, you know, classes, you know, just to fulfill their agendas. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, sexual deviance and all these things that we're seeing. And so uh, I think that, you know, we as, as Christians, we as, as, as God-fearing people, uh, we really have to wake up, we have to realize the danger. And, and that's why I wrote this book. You know, the, I think that it's something that I, I really believe that this, this is a, a resource and a roadmap uh, to help the church kind of get back on track here. Excellent. And the, um, you know, the, the whole issue of, of moral relativism, the idea that um, these sort of moral strictures only apply to the enemy that stands in the way of our socialist progress, but not to us. It's based upon a very nihilistic idea that goes right, right back to the very events of the Garden of Eden, that, that uh, man defines what is and what isn't. Man is the source of rights. Governments operate as a vehicle to enforce those rights. Therefore, we have to control government 
because we know what's right and yeah. we decide what's right. And, um, you know, it's, it's completely contrary to not just the Judeo-Christian principle, but also the principle and the political and social philosophy that the United States was founded on. 100%. The rights come from the creator and not from the state. You know, this nation is the flowering of Christian ideals in that sense. And I honor that, again, as a non-Christian, but I honor that in, in, with a small c, that the, the rights come from the creator. This is the whole idea of Jesus's ministry. This is why Jesus stood up to Pontius Pilate and said, when Pilate said to him, where do you get your authority? And he said, I answered to a higher authority. Yeah. He was executed within the hour. He stood up as one man against the mightiest secular state the world had ever known at that time, the Roman Empire. And ever since that, he's inspired all of us, Christian and non-Christian, to do just that. That we, under, you know, the state doesn't decide what's true. The state doesn't define reality, doesn't define right and wrong. God does. And we have a limited sovereignty under God as individuals. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book, I, I actually think that, um, you know, what we see is part of being made in God's image is that he has given us a form of sovereignty within our own lives. You know, I don't have sovereignty over the universe or sovereignty over, you know, even my street for that matter. I have sovereignty, I have sovereignty you know, over my will in the sense that there I can decide how I want to live today and whether I'm going to follow his principles or not. So I've been made in his image. God's, you know, God obviously is, it cannot be tamed. He's not, he's not under control of anybody else. He's, he's fully self-governing. And, and this is what we mean when we talk about his sovereignty and his majesty and these things. You know, but um, when when the left talks about something again, like like church and state, uh, and the separation of this, they, they actually don't even understand the intent of that. And you know, the, that phrase came from. Of course, we find elements and traces of it uh, of the concept within the Old Testament law. We see you know concepts of that within in even the New Testament teachings. But you know, more recently, a pastor, John Calvin. Was was an adamant uh, proponent, and and he was really the first one in more recent years, you know, during the 1600s, to speak out about this idea of separation of church and state. What he said about it is that the the state should always be far enough away from the church that it shall never tell it what to do. But he said that the church should always be close enough to the state in order to be her conscience, and that that teaching is really what you know uh, had impacted. Uh, the majority of our founders, most of these guys were reformers of some sort. They were, they were, they were Presbyterian. They were Congregationalists. They were, you know, Scottish Reform. All impacted by Calvin's teaching, and this was something that was embedded in their thinking, and it was brilliant. And I think that we saw tremendous success of that in our nation. Obviously, the further away we get from those concepts, and the less that the the church is allowed to be the conscience of the state. I, I don't want to create a theocracy, but I want to create a world where the church has a voice. And that the state is it understands that it is not just uh, that the state does not possess the sovereignty to do whatever it wants if that violates natural law and the laws and, and the reasoning of God. You know, it's like the uh, fictional rabbi said in The Fiddler on the Roof when he was asked, do we have a blessing for the czar? He said, may God bless the czar and keep him far away from us. <laughs> anyway, my guest is Lucas Miles. The book is The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. So, Lucas, you have a program. You're, yeah. you're out there. You've, you're a minister. You have a congregation. Tell me about your congregation. So I have a, I'm actually here in South Bend, Indiana. If I lean back, I can almost see the Golden Dome uh, from, my, from my desk here. 
And uh, we have a church called Influence Church. There's no I, it's just N-F-L-U-E-N-C. And I've been pastoring there actually a little over 15 years, uh, believe it or not. And uh, just a great group, great home base for me. And they understand that I kind of have my, uh, my, my hands in a few other things. And so I host a podcast show called the Lucas Miles Show, where I interview uh, celebrities and influencers about their faith, people like Jim Caviezel, Kathy Lee Gifford, Mario Lopez, and others. Um, uh, and uh, um, also, um, uh, I have another show that I co-host called The Church Boys. And that is, we're regularly top 100 uh, news commentary shows in the country. Uh, so it's myself, Chris Field, and Billy Hollowell. Uh, we, it's kind of a humorous take on uh, current events and uh, mm-hmm. from a, from a theolo- you know, theology, Christian lens. And uh, it's, it's a good time if somebody's looking for uh, maybe some material while they're working out. Excellent. I'll put a link to it, put a link up to it. Appreciate so that. The, the, uh, you know, the celebrities that you interview, it's kind of very tricky business to be Christian and to be conservative for that matter in yeah. Hollywood and in kind of our cultural media today. What, what do they say about that? You know, I mean, obviously, some are willing to talk about it more so than others. Um, and, you know, somebody like uh, Kathy Lee Gifford, you you know, every program she's on, she just about preaches, you know, I mean, she just is she's and, and she does. She's not political with it, but she's going to talk about her faith and how it's changed her life. And again, I think that when you're telling your testimony of how these things have impacted you and you're not just trying to tell somebody else how to live, I think that's tolerated a little bit more. Uh, and, you know, some, some Christians, I think, you know, uh, especially influencers and, 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 you know, um, celebrities, I think they create some more problems for themselves sometimes by maybe the way they present things. And, and, and I will say, you know, um, just, you know, celebrities are hard to disciple and, and that's not all a fault of their own, but when you're, when you have a, a, the name recognition or kind of the, the visual recognition and you walk into a room or a tor- church and everybody's looking at you and turning around and chicken neck, you know, seeing what's going on, that becomes distracting. I think the people feel that. And so they sometimes kind of, you know, uh, keep the, they come in, they come in late, they leave early. So they're not disrupting things. So they kind of just get what they want. And, and I think the pastors sometimes don't know how to deal with people of influence like that, because there's always a fear of, um, you know, if I push them too hard, are they going to leave? If, you know, I also want to, you know, be very careful and maybe they're donating these sorts of things. There's all these pressures and it, it's tough. Well, you know, in these times, we all have to sort of people of faith. I think we need to network with each other and band together. 100%. You know, we're, we're really trying to, um, you know, in a sense, engage in a counter revolution almost. There's some great Christians in Hollywood and we're seeing that on the rise and, uh, and yeah, it's always fun to talk to people about their faith and see where they're at. Excellent. All right, Lucas Miles. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me. Great talk. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks, Charles. Appreciate it. Take care. God bless.